Hello, welcome to Head On History. I am your host, Ali Alomi. This podcast is brought to you by audiblefreetrial.com slash headonhistory. You can go over there and catch a free uh, audiobook uh, and support this podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to head over to iTunes and leave a review. I love to hear from you. Uh, uh, and, you know, let me know what you think of the podcast. If you're enjoying it, five stars and uh, some comments are always welcome. Um, how are you all doing? I hope you are well and you're enjoying the podcast so far. Uh, this has been a pretty fun recording these, these episodes. I'm enjoying talking a little bit about the ancient world. It's also a break from... Uh, you know, history of the Middle East, which I normally teach. Um, I, don't, I don't get to teach uh, ancient world history very often. I think once a year at the most. So it's been a, a nice book. I actually am probably going to be teaching it this coming summer, if I'm not mistaken. Based on this podcast, this podcast actually comes from that class that I teach, Empires of Faith. Uh, so hopefully you've been enjoying it. I have been enjoying it. I wanted to start this podcast off really by by shouting out some podcasts that I listen to, that, that I really enjoy. Um, of course, there's the, the sister podcast uh, of this currently nerdy uh, hosted by uh, myself diz and v it's a fun podcast way more crude of a podcast uh, so bear that in mind uh, if, if you're not interested in something that's more than pg-13 definitely don't go over there it's more of a kind of social commentary with a three really acerbic vulgar nerds um, i also want to shout out uh, footnote history they do amazing amazing work really good stuff uh, human Circus, which I am absolutely adore this podcast. This really good, like, uh, travel, like, like, mic, almost micro history. I wouldn't call it micro history, but really get it, turning that lens and focusing in, for example, on one traveler, um, and, and does a kind of in the medieval era and does a phenomenal, phenomenal job. So definitely check out Human uh, Circus, uh, the Greek history podcast I mentioned, uh, last week. Uh, they are phenomenal. Uh, and of course, Wonders of the World podcast. It's at wonderspodcast.libsyn.com. Fusion of travel, of food, wonders of the world, history, phenomenal. There's a lot more, and I'll, and I'll shout them out throughout the, uh, uh, what do I call this season, I guess? Throughout the season, whatever this is, <laughs> this section. Uh, I'll shout them out throughout uh, the, the season because I think they're phenomenal. And, you know, I listen to podcasts myself. It's, it's just one of those things. Podcasters listen to other podcasts. Um, so check them out. They are, they are great. Um, today I wanted to talk to you about the Assyrians. So we, we wrapped up a little bit about the Egyptians. We're going to continue to talk about the Egyptians. We started them last week. We're going to continue and revisit them as time goes on. But right now, I want to shift a little bit to the Assyrians because this sets the stage for what's going on in world history. And they re really represent, the Assyrians do, one of the first true world empires. Now, the Egyptians had also expanded, but the Egyptians, much like the previous uh, Mesopotamian empires that we had talked about, the Babylonians and the Akkadians, they establish more of a hegemony, meaning that they're the dominant force and their influence extends quite far. But that doesn't necessarily mean they directly rule places like the Levant, right? And the Egyptians in that way are very similar to the other Mesopotamians, but the Assyrians represent a really 
you know, first world empire that we're encountering. This is an empire that that does expand outside of the mess of Mesopotamia, and it also we start to see them interact with other major empires. So we are entering in, at least in the ancient era. We've talked about civilizations that have these early empires, but now we are entering into the age of empires in the ancient world. These are empires that are now going to clash, that are fighting against one another, that have international relations, um, and, and there's all sorts, and they really kind of divide up the ancient Near East amongst themselves. We know that the Assyrians start in the city of Ashur in 2600 BCE, and they span both the Bronze and the Iron Age. Now, the Iron Age is an era of massive transformation. It's so called that by historians and archaeologists because of the uh, uh, discovery of iron. But for some context, the Stone Age, the era of kind of primitive tools, the era of working with stone and early complex societies, early societies that are kind of moving away from, from hunter-gatherer and shifting towards uh, some, some sedentary components, that's five to seven times longer than the Iron Ages. Just to put that in context, we're talking about thousands of years of history. Indeed, when I teach the, hist when this, the history of this class, when I teach the, the uh, Empires of Faith class, I always tell people that the first couple weeks, we've spanned tens of thousands of years. Indeed, when, I, when we reach the kind of era of the Romans, I tell them that Cleopatra is closer to us in our age than she is the pyramids. She's closer to us than she is the pyramids. I mean, that kind of, oh, that always blows their minds. Like, wait, what? What do you mean? And it's true. So we're talking about long stretches of time. But the Iron Age is really transformative. And that is because of the smelting of iron. It's believed iron was probably discovered along with copper and, and, and kind of other uh, minerals in Africa. And then it slowly spread upwards from there. The smelting of iron brings about a new era of warfare and tools. First and foremost, we start to see spears, swords, all using iron. We're moving away from the use of bronze. This allows deadlier weapons. It allows more effective weapons, bows and arrows. We're also starting to see the rise in chariots. Now, chariots may have existed earlier, probably a development from the plow of some sort. Um, but now we're starting to see them as widespread tools of warfare. And they were in many ways the sort of tanks of the ancient world. They allowed you to traverse large amounts of territory fast. They allowed you to organize in warfare very effectively. More often than not, they required multiple uh, uh, riders, one who would kind of guide the chariot and another who would throw spears. Uh, very, you know, We see bows and arrows as well. Um, that might have been a little bit of an embellishment, the kind of reliefs that we see with bows and arrows. It doesn't mean that the people didn't shoot bows and arrows from chariots, but it's likely that they, they, more, they, they probably threw javelins more than anything else. Simply because bows and arrows, um, the, first, it takes... If anyone's ever shot a bow, you'll know that it actually takes quite a bit of strength to pull that, to draw the bow, to pull the string back. And two, um, it's very bumpy. Chariots are not particularly stable. They're also used ceremoniously, so kings and emperors would ride in chariots. They would have canopies above them. It's usually how we would uh, uh, notice them or recognize them and identify them on any relief. They're the ones that usually have a canopy above them. 
the uh, rise of iron tools as well, not just for warfare, but for uh, the daily life of axes and, and knives and various things used for cutting, for uh, sewing, for grinding. This has an impact on the environment. What we start to see is a massive level of deforestation. Right. Up until this time, you know, people have tried to master their environment, but are mostly at the mercies of the of the environment. They learn to live within certain contexts. And as a result, we saw that that had an impact on their religion, the sort of outlook of the ancient Egyptians versus the outlook of, say, the Babylonians, right, being shaped by the Nile versus being shaped by the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now we start to see that the man has truly a capacity to shape the environment for himself. And so while water and things remain important to them, Iron becomes super important. So we see the rise of these kind of iron gods or deities that are associated with smelting and forging and creating weapons. They become very powerful and very important for the mythologies of the ancient peoples. In particular, uh, we start to see that uh, the shaping of the kind of environment also has an impact on the animal world. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how the Assyrians uh, participated in lion hunts and, and various kind of big game hunts and the impact that that had. The Assyrians really represent uh, the, the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Originally, they were subjects of Acadia themselves, uh, probably, uh, you know, living under various Mesopotamian dynasties for a while, the Akkadians and the Babylonians. In fact, they were one of the groups of people that eventually rebels against Sargon of Akkad. They have uh, formed their own empire with the collapse of, of the Babylonians. And their empire is vast. It's territory that goes from the Zargos Mountains to the Caucasus, Upper Mesopotamia. And they even brush up against the other major empires of the region, namely the ancient Egyptians and the Hittites in Anatolia. Well, we're not going to talk too much about the, the Hittites in this podcast, but we will continue to reference them. In fact, the, the kind of breakdown or the kind of division of the Near East between Hittite, Assyrian, and Egyptian becomes the normative kind of international imperial policy for a long period of time. Those are the three main peoples, if you will, of the ancient Near East. Now, there is another group of people that are kind of mysterious. We don't know who they are. They are the sea peoples because they come from the sea. They have these kind of long boats and they show up in world history to kind of raid and maraud and, and pillage. And they're considered just a nuisance to everybody. Uh, no one knows exactly who they are. There's some theories. Maybe they're the Phoenicians and some others that say, oh, maybe they're from North Africa. Others say that maybe they're from Greece. Some people say that maybe they're the original uh, the, the, the descendants become the Philistines and Canaan. They're, no one really knows who they are. But they are uh, identifiable. The Egyptians in particular have a series of reliefs. Uh, there's a relief of Ramses III that depicts them, and they usually have horned helms, so helmets with horns on them, uh, spears, shield, and sword short, uh, and short swords, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> short swords. These people um, kind of depict the prototypical Viking. Indeed, the depictions of Vikings that we have today of kind of horned helm, that's not accurate. It's very unlikely that the Vikings in any way, shape, or form had 
horns on their helmets. But the Sea People did. The Sea People, or at least the reliefs of the Sea People did. And so we start to see in this kind of ancient world, in this particular moment, that the horned helm becomes associated with the marauder or person. And the, the, the weapons that they have, the spear, the shield, and the, the short sword, become the kind of toolkit of most major empires and uh, warriors. In fact, uh, most people think of the sword as the main weapon of soldiers. That's not true. We don't see that until the late Middle Ages, and even then, only certain people are using swords directly. Um, the most common weapon that people had, or the main weapon in your main arm, would be your shield. And the Romans mastered this as well. We'll talk about this particular warfare and tactics under the Romans, but the, the sea people are the first to really kind of develop this. You'd have put your shield in your main hand, then your spear was your primary or your secondary weapon, and then, then you pulled out your sword as a kind of final resort once you lost your, your spear. This was used and replicated by the Egyptians, it was replicated by the Hittites, and it was replicated by the Assyrians, who then also threw in chariots. The Assyrian Empire, being kind of born in this context of the Age of Empires, clashing with two other major empires, is essentially a military state. There it has something known as the ecosystem. The ecosystem or the ecosystem we're not exactly clear on the pronunciations, but the Ilku system is uh, basically a form of conscription in which every male adult has to serve in the military for a period of time. So this is a society of men who are predominantly warriors. Um, they may have other trades, they may have other crafts, they are a pastoral people, surprisingly. They have massive urban centers, but they are a pastoral people. But they are military and they're products of the kind of Bronze Age and the Iron Age. This is a society of people who fight on chariots, of people who have weapons and who, whose primary function is that of a warrior. In other eras, we didn't see this as primary function as a warrior. Then this this component, this uh, this nature of, of how technology changes society and how technology has an impact on the Assyrians also shapes their society. The warrior society has certain attitudes. This is a much stricter society when it comes to punishments. They see themselves very much as the descendants of Hammurabi, as, of the kind of legal code that Hammurabi has. So lex talionis, the law of retaliation of exacting punishment for crimes is a big thing for the Assyrians. We know in particular that they were very aware of sex crimes, that they are detailed what would happen if someone committed all sorts of sex crimes. Now, we probably believe that the reason why they're so fixated on sex crimes is twofold. One, if you are a, war, a society of warriors, the chances of sexual violence also go up. Just the reality is, you know, even today, you know, the military is kind of un in the United States has, you know, a, not necessarily a reputation, but has this crisis going on in which sexual assault happens there, right? And that's not to say that soldiers are inherently violent or, or, or to say that, they, you know, the military is inherently conducive to things like that. But if you have an entire society based on warfare, then it becomes hard to stave off that warfare once they come back home. 
right? There are all sorts of, of things that come with warfare, um, you know, aggression, PTSD. They wouldn't have recognized these things back then, but it would have existed. This is a this violent era, and it's an era where empires are clashing amongst one another. And if you're trained to be a soldier and dedicate a significant number of your times to being a soldier and a warrior, and then when you come home, Sometimes that violence bleeds over, and we so we do see that you know that sex crimes may likely have been an uh, unintended consequence or a result of this militaristic society, but also that because they're a militaristic society, they're more keen on punishing sex crimes, because sex crimes uh, you know attacks the cohesion of a unit. It attacks the cohesion of society, right? If if people are committing acts of sexual aggression against one another, we don't have a lot of kind of language about morality from the Assyrians. But we do see that they recognize that sex crimes is detrimental to the people, to the society. And they have kind of complicated ways of, uh, of understanding sexual relations. So, for example, on one end, uh, penetration of, of, of the cult of prostitutes. This would be professional sex workers associated with the goddesses of fertility often not seen as a crime but there was a crime if a man for example penetrated or had sexual relations with a man of higher standing than he did so if he were to sleep with or penetrate or have sex with uh, one of the retinue of the king or the emperor that was considered a crime it was considered a violation in other terms, however, uh, if he had sexual relations or penetrated someone beneath him in the social status, that was considered simply an act of masculinity. So you start to see these kind of constructions of masculinity that are tied to sexuality. There isn't a criminalization of, say, same-sex relationships in any way, shape, or form. Let's be clear about that. There isn't. But there is a sort of a hierarchy that emerges, a hierarchy of masculinity, of militant masculinity. You knew where your place was in society, and if you uh, tried to, uh, you know, attack anyone above you, sexually speaking, then you were considered a criminal. If, however, you uh, exploited, we'll say, anyone beneath you in the social standing, that was simply normative. So there is a hierarchy in which violence uh, allows that hierarchy to be reified, who is at the top and who is at the bottom, so to speak. And that is really kind of a fundamentally shaped by the experience of the warfare. This is, you know, a militaristic society. In turn, this also has an impact on the way that they view kingship. So this is the emergence of what we would call the heroic kings or the imperial kings. Kings that saw themselves as kind of larger than life, not just as agents of the gods. Hammurabi saw himself as the agent of the gods. Uh, many kings, uh, you know, the pharaohs saw themselves literally as gods. But these people, these kings and emperors saw themselves as uniquely endowed, blessed, and empowered by the gods. And therefore, they would exert that through, you know, displays of violence. Displays of spectacular violence, we should say. Not just the ability to kill, the power over life and death. All the kings have claimed this up until this point. But the power to kill in a kind of vast, spectacular fashion. In turn, by doing so, they justify their rule. 
Look what I can do. Of course I am blessed by the gods. I can do this because I am blessed by the gods. And by doing this, I am blessed by the gods. To, to kind of drive this home a little bit. There's an inscription that we have from Ashura ben Apal. Let, let, me, let me read this to you and this will help us to kind of parse this a little bit. To Nabu, exalted lord who dwells in Izida, which is in Nineveh, his lord. I, Ashur ben Apal, king of Assyria, the one longed for and destined by his great divinity, who at the issuing of his order and the giving of his solemn decree, cut off the head of Tioman, king of Elam, after defeating him in battle, and whose great command my hand conquered, Uman Igash, Timaret, Pae, Uman Altash, who ruled of Elam after Tioman. I yoke them to my sedan chair, my sedan chair, my royal conveyance. With his great help, I establish decent order on all the lands without exception. At that time, I enlarged the structure of the court of the temple of Nabu, my lord, using massive limestone. May Nabu look with joy on this. May he find it acceptable. So here we have Ashur ben Apal, who's actually a neo, an Assyrian ruler, right? And we'll talk about the Assyrians and the Neo-Assyrians because they, they have an impact on early Israelite religion as well. So we'll talk Ashur ben Apal, uh, Shalamanser, and and. Nebuchadnezzar in just a moment. But what we see in this inscription is what? The commemoration of violence. I, Ashur ben Apal, destined by his great divinity, cut off the head of Tioman, king of Elam. So it's not just execution. The right to life and death, again, all the empires have claimed that. It is the right uh, to the right over spectacular violence, these kind of big forms of violence, if you will, that makes Ashur ben Nepal destined by his great divinity. And not only did he kill Tioman, king of Elam, but then he tied all the other rulers of Elam after Tioman to his sedan chair. He enslaved them, in other words. He brought them to heel under his dominion. And then with great help, what does he do? He establishes order. So in other words, law and order is backed by the threat of violence. This is really important to understand because it becomes the basis of law in the ancient world. Law is not to establish civil society. Law is to establish order. Order. And order is maintained and law is upheld through violence. Specifically, the hegemony of violence by the king. The king and the king alone can carry out acts of violence. This is why eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, so on and so forth, right? That comes from that law, lax, lex talionis, that concept of eye for an eye. It comes from the fact that when you commit violence against somebody else, you are usurping the right of the king over that violence. You are usurping the hegemony, authority, and power of the king. That is at the heart of ancient law. That is how, and we're going to see that this is replicated throughout much of ancient civilizations, that the idea is that the king and king alone has the right to, to kill you. And when someone else kills somebody, they're usurping the king's authority. It's not necessarily a moral act. Oh, you've done something evil yet. We'll see how it becomes moralized over time. But originally it is that you were usurping, you were causing disorder because you were usurping the power of the king. The king, in turn, maintains order via what? 
threat of death. Life and death is how he maintains his order. I establish order after I kill Tioman, king of Ilam. And then once he's done that, what does he do? Using massive limestones, he expands and enlarges the structure of the court of the temple of Nabu. The gods have blessed him, and because he's blessed, he can therefore go out and carry out spectacular forms of violence. This violence then establishes order, and once order is established, he then returns the favor of the gods by expanding the temple of the gods. This is the demonstration of kingship, destruction and creation, the ability to destroy your enemies, the ability to kill, the ability to kill spectacularly, and the ability to build monumental buildings. This is the core of Assyrian kingship. We also have like uh, corroborating stories about the Assyrians, not just, um, you know, in this case, we have the relief or the inscription by Ashur ben Appal, but we, you know, even the Bible references uh, the Assyrians. In many ways, early Israelite religion is shaped by its encounter with the Assyrians. We'll actually talk about early Israelite religion next next week, and we'll talk about the beginnings of you know, Yahweh, Yahweh and, and, you know, Deuteronomy and the kind of ideas of henotheism, demonotheism. We'll talk all about that next week. So very interesting stuff. You know, I talked about, hyped it up last week. I'll hype it up this week. But we find, for example, in Isaiah 36, 1 through 22, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshkeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the washer's field. And there came out to him Elakim, the son of Hilkai, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary of Joah, son of Aspa, the recorder and so on and so forth. So what we see here is that the, the Bible talks about the Assyrians. Why? Why, do, why is the Bible talking about the Assyrians? Because it was part of the imperial context in which early Israelite religion emerged, and it was the context of the ancient Near East. We, going further, Isaiah 19, 23 to 25, in that day there was a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What we're seeing here is the imperial context. This is exactly what I was talking about earlier. Assyria on one end, Egypt on the other, and the Hittites up at the north. So the Bible reflects this history. The Bible records and remembers this history. The Hebrew Bible remembers it very clearly so that we have all these sources talking about what was going on. And I think the, the, the discourse there or the story of Assyria coming to conquer Israel talks about the kingship that, I, that I've been highlighting here. We see, for example, uh, for example under Shalmaneser III, who ruled from about 859 to 824 BC, that he comes to, to, to the Israelites and the king of the Israelites, and he demands obedience. And Jehu, or Yehu, 
the king of the Israelites kneels before him. There's a whole relief that shows Shalom answer looming above Jehu and, and Yehu bowing and kowtowing. This is the kingship, the imperial kingship, that heroic kingship that is exhibited when Ashur ben Apal talks about uh, conquering the king of Elam. It's about domination. In other words, the gods justify empire and empire justifies the gods. Uh, Ashur ben Apal, who is uh, uh, we mentioned before, he's actually a Neo-Assyrian. So the Assyrians have a vast kind of empire. There's the old Assyria, middle Assyria, and then the Neo-Assyrians. He rules from 668 to 627. And not only is he conquering other people, killing other kings, there's a very famous uh, a depiction of him in which he conquers an Arabian ruler, and he puts a dog collar on him and throws him into the kennels and treats him basically like a dog. In other words, he has the ability to obey other kings. That's how powerful he is because he's been blessed by the gods. But more famously, Ashur ben Apal is depicted as killing lions. He goes on these great lion hunts. And these lion hunts aren't just recreational. They're deeply symbolic. They're exercising the sort of militant masculinity that I was talking about earlier. This is a society of soldiers and warriors. And the king has to demonstrate his prowess. And he does so through lion hunts. He kills this great and powerful beast, he defeats it in a hunt, and therefore demonstrates his prowess, his strength, and his ability. This is both a sign of the gods, but is also justified by the gods. So it works hand in hand in that way. This is fundamentally a result of the Iron Age. The capacity to kill increases with more effective weapons of death. And the more effective weapons of death have environmental effects. We talked about deforestation in the beginning of this podcast, but it also wiped out the lion population of Mesopotamia. We don't talk about lions in Mesopotamia anymore because they were mostly devastated. The population was completely wiped out and killed by the Assyrians and their great lion hunts. This is the way in which environment both shapes religion and is shaped by the sort of ideology or religious beliefs of the people. These people believed in exercising their military might through these lion hunts. But it is also the introduction, I would say, of certain technological tools that now allow the ancient peoples to shape the environment. These are the era of new gods. These are conquering gods. Now, we talked about Marduk already, and Marduk was a powerful god. He was a god of lightning, a god of the rains, but he was a god of storms that defeated chaos, Tiamat, and brought order. The new kind of understanding of Marduk and these new deities, the same kind of Sumerian deities, is not just that they're warrior gods that bring order, but these are imperial gods that wage war against other gods. You conquer, defeat, and demonstrate supremacy. So while early Mesopotamian religion may have been sort of integrative in that the Babylonians built on what the Akkadians believe and the Assyrians built on what the Babylonians believed, that they take the old myths, the similar gods, the uh, Nabu and Marduk and uh, you know Ashur and, and Inna, Inanna and, and Ereshkigal and Shamash, all these deities that already exist, but now they give them a new interpretation.
an element of supremacy is introduced. It's not just that we accept these old gods, but these gods, our gods, are the best gods. We originally go from a, a region in which each city had its own sort of patron deity. And as the empires emerged, as dynasties transformed into empires and these empires started to exert hegemony, these deities were brought together into a sort of pantheon. So they all became related to one another. They all became part of one collective. But they were still the uh, gods of cities. They belonged to a people. There was no desire to go and take the word of Shamash to other people, so to speak. But with the Assyrians, we now see, no, no, we don't just have gods. Our gods are the best gods. So it's the transformation of national deities or tribal deities into de supreme deities. Deities that are then better than all the other gods. And you demonstrate this by your kingdom going to war with another kingdom and defeating them. Once they were able to defeat you, then you were under their dominion and they could do whatever they want. One of the practices of the Assyrians from the old Assyrians all the way to the Neo-Assyrians is that they would displace people. So once they conquered you, they would take the people into captivity and then kind of spread them out throughout the empire. They would, for whatever purposes, whether they enslaved you or they needed you in this other city, they moved you around. And this is going to be important. This displacement policy is one way in which they were able to maintain order what it does is it breaks the bonds of kinship right these are this is an era where you when you lived in the city that was your life there wasn't people didn't move about really i mean today we talk about like oh i'm gonna move cross country like it's nothing but in the ancient world you lived in the city and that's it in fact even your deity was often of the city itself it was the name of the city you worship the city for uh, the assyrians right uh, their main deity originally was Ashur, the, of their city uh, it's literally named after the city it was a god so that's how important it was. And so this displacement policy was really disruptive. It ensured that people couldn't rise up and rebel against the Assyrians. And we'll talk about how um, this becomes a major policy that impacts the Israelites, the early Israelites, the displacement of them, the taking the Babylonian captivity. We're going to see the impact of that on them and the impact it has on Israelite religion. The empire of the Assyrians, and the reason we call it an empire, like I mentioned, is unlike what came before, they are not just exerting a hegemony, they're not just exerting influence, but they're exerting direct rule, and they did so via roads, and we talked about this, I just recited that verse from Isaiah that talks about this highway, well, we see this in the records of the Assyrians as well, they built these massive roads that allowed them to move troops in very swift fashion, but not just troops, but see weapons. In other words, these were people that were waging war against city dwellers. They're not marauders like the sea people. They're not attacking pastoral societies. They are attacking the cities directly. They lay siege to them and then they destroy the cities or the, they displace the people. And by doing so, they demonstrated their imperial might as, uh, as divinely ordained by the gods, by Ashur, by Nabu, by Shamash, by Marduk, and so on. That said, despite being a very brutal sort of empire, a militaristic state, they were 
uh, writers and artisans. The Assyrians collected a lot of writings. They were very interested in the Babylonians. They were very interested in Nineveh. Ashur ben Apol himself had a vast library of cuneiform. So we see that they we an expansion in writing to a degree we had not seen before. And in turn, this pr produces a type of an administrative bureaucracy, a large court of courtiers that we had never seen before. This is a necessary functionally for an empire that is going to rule vast territories. If you're not just going to exert hegemony and collect taxes from the places you've conquered, but you're actually going to rule and govern them, you are going to need an effective administrative body to do so. So this empire, this is why we call the Assyrians a true empire, a true world empire. It has an expansionist ideology. It expands because it needs to, but also because it is a product of the kind of technological changes that are going on within the era. It is a product of a clash of empires. It in turn has monumental buildings, the building of infrastructure, the building of roads, the building of administration. It has direct policies for how to deal with conquered people. All of this plays a factor into why we consider Assyrians the first true world empire. They are people who have an expansionist ideology, a sense of supremacy about the gods. That said, as militaristic as they were, and indeed had a sort of militant masculinity that led to things like the conquering of your enemies and the ruthless destruction of them from impaling and beheading, killing kings, to even massive lion hunts, there was a, uh, eras in which there were female rulers, the most famous of which was Shamuramat. Uh, we're not sure exactly how she came into power, but we know that it was probably because her son was too young to rule, and so she ruled as regent in his uh, stead. And Shamuramat, uh, Ramat, we're believed to, you know, her name might be related to something bird-like, maybe dove or pigeon uh, or, or something of the sort, and it is from Old Assyrian. Um, but she is the wife of a previous king, uh, Shamshi Adad V, who dies in 811 BCE, and she comes into power to rule in his stead in the Neo-Assyrian Empire as the regent until her son, uh, Adad Nirari III, comes of age. This is an area of deep kind of political turmoil and conflict, which is why she was probably accepted as a ruler. They needed some form of stability. They needed something to allow her, uh, they, you know, they needed something to allow them to continue or sense or have a sense of continuity in this moment of conflict. And I think that she provided that. She became a sort of legendary figure, a very mythic figure, a very powerful queen in her own right. Uh, there is a stela, a memorial stone that was found in Ashur uh, that indicates how powerful she was, indicates how uh, well she was revealed. But that said, this was likely the exception and not the normative experience. This was a deeply patriarchal society that was ruled by warriors, that was ruled by soldiers who demonstrated strength through violence.
And that ideology of strength and order and law through violence, of supremacy of the gods, is where I want to leave it today. It is going to be where I pick up when we talk about the ancient Israelites, who in turn will talk about this question of, well, are we just, do we have one god amongst many gods, or is our god supreme above all other gods? And there'll be a whole discourse that God has that talks about, you know, what, what happens if we get conquered? Does that mean our god is weaker than the god of the Babylonians or the Assyrians? So we'll talk about this kind of notion of supremacy within religion. But again, this is a product of empire. It's how empire and religion go hand in hand together in this era of the Iron Age. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. If you are, make sure you head over to uh, iTunes and give us a review. You can also let me know what your thoughts are. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. I'm always happy to hear from all of you. Thank you for all of your support and feedback on the podcast and the episodes. And stay tuned for next week when we talk about the ancient Israelites. That's all for tonight. Stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm-hmm.